Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin and welcome to another week from our great state. We have our full panel, which means Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action is with us. Claire, good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you too, even if it is a somewhat dreary, rainy day here in Wisconsin. It is. It is. And uh, again, we uh, join you via Zoom from our homes as we're still staying pandemic safe. That means Robert Craig is tucked away from his Bayview perch. Robert Craig, our executive director here. Welcome. Uh, Good day to both our digital and our uh, radio listening audiences. So we have uh, big news to talk about. Uh, We record every Thursday morning. uh, But by the time you listen to this, we expect that the uh, Joint Finance Committee here at the in the for the Wisconsin State Legislature will have uh, made a motion today uh, where they will have removed about I think it's around 280 pretty publicly popular items from the budget and uh, one of them including the critical federal uh, taking the federal money for expanding Badger Care and uh, Badger Care Public Option and a number of other things. Uh, Claire, I'm going to go to you first since uh, you track this closely. You're our healthcare director. You've been, you know, knee deep in this fight. Uh, tell our listeners real quickly just some of the key things uh, that 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 Republicans are removing and why this is so important. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I think I want to start out with a, just a brief <clears throat> summary of where we are in the budget process. Um, The Joint Finance Committee, or officially the Joint Committee on Finance, which is the uh, committee of the state legislature that has both members of the state assembly and the state senate on it, um, and is stacked very heavily towards, um, by law, uh, towards the majority party, in this case, the Republican Party. Um, They just finished their uh, public hearings in April about the state budget, and um, now in May are heading into their uh, their their legislative process. So this is where they're going to start taking up motions and amendments to add things in and take things out of the state budget. And um, something that has happened in recent budget years and that we anticipated might happen again this year was uh, formally announced at the end of last week, which is that the legislature would um, take out a whole slew of uh, provisions from the governor's budget that were new things that the governor added in. Um, so these are things that we consider to be progressive things, but also things that are that are kind of smaller technical changes um, that uh, maybe are a little bit lefty, but are not you know super progressive things. Um, but but really things that the governor added in and that he wanted. Um, and this is in an effort to uh, bring the budget down to sort of a base budget of what it was last year so the Republicans build can build on it from there. So this is a list of hundreds of budget items that they're going, going to uh, vote on in one motion to uh, take out. And uh, so it's not worth reading all of them. Um, but a few of the ones that we are particularly concerned about um, are starting with, of course, Badger Care expansion. Um, So we have been talking about the importance of 
uh, passing Badger Care expansion this year in particular uh, because of both the pandemic highlighting how important it is for people to have high quality health coverage so that they, if they get sick, uh, for example, in a global pandemic with COVID-19, um, that they can uh, go to the hospital, um, that they can afford to see their doctor, uh, not be afraid to get tested, things like that. Um, <clears throat> and also because this year, because of um, the uh, financial incentive packages that President Biden and Congress passed, there would be an additional $1.6 billion that would come into the state over the course of two years. Um, so, but these are all things that you all already know. Um, other things that are gonna be taken out um, if this motion passes include all of our prescription drug affordability efforts, like putting a um, cost sharing cap on insulin, um, the passing of the Prescription Drug Affordability Board that would um, evaluate drug prices for excessive price increases, um, transparency measures around prescription drug affordability. Um, other non-healthcare related things include the um, utilities uh, financing for upgrades um, that we supported, the on-bill financing pieces that we supported. Um, of course, marijuana regulation, legalization, but we all kind of anticipated that they would also have a problem with that. But uh, yeah, like I said, I, I won't go through every item, but um, this is a, a really big list of things that we care about that they're voting on. Uh, yeah, no, and Claire, you you mentioned that this seems to be a, a, a new trend. Robert, explain to our listeners why the Republicans are doing this. Well, it was always traditional with the Joint Finance Committee, the powerful budget writing committee of the state legislature to have a vote near the front on policy items that weren't budget items and then governors and joint finance committee members always add uh, non non-fiscal items because it's the only bill that has to pass the legislature every two-year cycle now they've turned into a new tradition since they got a democrat governor in 2019 of taking out everything the governor put in that isn't something that they thought of or didn't exist in a budget they had written. And this is really no different. We don't really have to go through a long list of what they took out. They took out every, say, every initiative or innovation that Evers put in, okay, and uh, they and including a Badger Care expansion, but a number of other things, as Claire was pointing out. And this is not a final vote. They are still writing the budget. So part of this is just shock and awe. We have the power. We're rejecting the governor's budget. They're probably going to come back and do some things that the governor did in their own way and claim credit for them, like broadband, for example. And there's even a possibility they'll see their way to budget care expansion, but they'll do it their way. It'll be their idea. And they'll use the money the way they want to. Okay, They're not going to say, oh, we agree with the governor. And the Democrats who are telling us to take this money uh, for, for over a decade now, since Scott Walker tur turned it down, they're not going to do it that way. In a way, if they hadn't, if they had like kept anything big in the budget, it would have been a sign they were for it. And that's not how these folks roll. They don't negotiate from weakness, very unlike a lot of Democrats in government. And so this is predictable. It's not final. All of these things were always a long shot. Uh, so it hasn't changed anything. And they can be moved. We know that there are multiple Republican senators on Joint Finance Committee. They're interested in taking the badge care expansion money. They're not going to show their hand now. And it doesn't mean we've won. It means it's just not over until it's over, to quote Yogi Berra, the uh, great philosopher 
uh, Hall of Fame baseball player. And so, but the other thing going on here is that they're having a temper tantrum over not being able to control the, the, the American Rescue Plan money that they, uh, many of them, sent a letter to Congress asking them not to do. And so this is their way. They're creating a huge deficit, $3.4 billion in the budget, and telling Evers, essentially, since you know they take every ounce of power, but they want Evers to give his power away, which is to spend this money. Uh, which is quite the uh, quite the uh, arrangement they want, right? We take all the power, you give away your power, uh, but they just want him to fill their budget gap with it, and that's their little tantrum kind of response of blowing everything up rather than actually governing. I, I think Robert, one of the most important points on uh, what you said is this is does not mean this budget cycle is over, and to that end, it is really really important that folks. Uh, Start reaching out if you haven't already, right? Just because the stuff's been pulled, now's the time. Uh, all of our state legislators still have to vote on this budget. They are still responsible for everything that's in it. And you need to reach out and contact your state legislators in support of all of these items. We think specifically Badger Care is one. Uh, we'll have links for you to be able to reach out and continue, continue to put that pressure on. And what I want to do is also really thank all of the members around the state that already have been moving in this process. Uh, yesterday on Wednesday, we held three separate media events around the state highlighting this, and in particularly in Republican state senators' uh, districts. And so thank you to all those folks who were in, involved in that uh, effort yesterday. Robert? Just, I just want to urge people, um, there's, I'm seeing a little too much on, on our side, some of this, this is the final vote stuff. You're accepting their frame if you think that, okay? So you're just accepting their frame of things. You need to understand that this doesn't change anything, that they're still writing the budget and they're writing it until June, and that they want us to demobilize. They want us to say, oh, we lost, let's go home, because that makes it easier for them to do stuff that has nothing to do with the public interest or even what the public wants and just relies on their gerrymandered districts in order to impose their, their, their dogmatic will on the rest of Wisconsin and their, and their, politic, their perceived political interest because they're all about power. This is very clear. If you watch the media from yesterday, and we'll have links to it, uh, the, the Republicans aren't responding other than just to say we're against accepting Badger Care. They're not doing public statements. They understand that this is not helpful to them. This is highly politically unpopular. And so it is absolutely critical. Right now is the time to get out, get active. Please make those calls. Uh, if you don't want to make a call, use our online link. You can definitely do that. We'll have a link to that. Robert, we got to get to a break. What's up? I was just going to say that you make a good point on Badger Care. They have no argument against taking the money for spending $1.6 billion more to cover fewer people. Their budget includes a massive Badger Care program. It's just bad, apparently, for people between 100 and 138% of the federal poverty line. It makes no sense. It's because it's a line the fan Walker drew, and they're just going to draw it, and they're going to spend $1.6 billion, give it away, in order to make this point. They don't have an argument against Badger Care expansion. Zero. With that, we have to take our first break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back. We 
are going to switch gears a little bit out of the state and start to look at uh, some big federal news that's been going on. Uh, one of the biggest news, and we'll, we're going to be joined later in the show by Tobita Chow from uh, People's Action to discuss the news, the big news that broke yesterday around uh, Biden supporting a vaccine waiver. We'll get into that later in the show. But the other big news, uh, there was a Trump judge, I'll just say it, she was appointed by Trump, uh, who invalidated the CDC eviction moratorium this week. Robert, this is, um, it's not shocking but um, that a Trump judge would do this, but it has huge ramifications uh, for a lot of working folks uh, in the middle, still in the middle of this pandemic. Let's remember how we got so many Trump judges. Mitch McConnell turned the Senate into a body that did nothing other than rubber stamp new Trump judges and pack the judiciary with them. And let me remind everyone, as far as structural reform, that uh, Biden has the authority to expand the number of judges. It's been done many times before, and we have a huge backlog of cases. That would be the answer to overcome their power grab. We haven't done it yet. I haven't heard it come up yet. But of course, the president's had a lot on his plate. So that sets up what happens when we have a pandemic and it would be outrageous to throw people out of their homes in the middle of a pandemic and cause more public health crisis, endanger them and their families. And, and, but we have landlords suing and demanding the right to do it and the ability to do it. And we had a, an order from the Center for Disease Control uh, for preventing evictions, and it's been extended. Now it is in jeopardy. And I, I, I'll let Claire speak to it. I don't even think I need to get into why this is horrendous and uh, why this is bad policy. And this goes back to, and, and by the way, when I, you might say, oh, you're talking about policy. This is a judicial ruling. This isn't some legitimate ring of the Constitution. These judges are politicians in robes, okay? They find a way to twist the law to come to a right-wing outcome. Let's not even worry about whatever legal argument this judge is making. But here's the thing. She is of such bad will, she didn't even stay her order to allow an appeal. So an appeals court is going to have to stay the order in order to prevent people from being immediately evicted. And there were some landlords that were all praising hallelujah and the like and talking about the restoration of freedom, which really triggered a lot of the housing advocates that I know and am in relationship with. There's been a lot of discussion of, you know, the landlord end zone celebration on this. Like they just can't wait to start evicting families who by no fault of their own are behind on rent because they were in a pandemic and a depression for the bottom half of the population in terms of income, not for the stock market. Yeah, I agree. Um, this this is clearly a case of um, <laughs> a, uh, a profit, greed-driven dri special interest group, um, in this case, some realtors out of, what, Alabama, I want to say, um, suing uh, <laughs> suing uh, over something that um, is good for society as a whole, um, for the economic interests of the country as a whole, for the public health of a country as a whole, because it uh, hurts temporarily their uh, small uh, interests around, um, I don't know, being able to make money off of renters, I guess. Um, I, I, 
I will say that like, also we are in a sort of historically weird moment around housing prices where rents and um, house purchases and home building um, equipment and uh, resources like lumber are really, really high. Um, so it's not like the realtors are hurting for money right now um, would be my um, totally unprofessional amateur estimation of what's going on in the housing market. Um, so I don't think they could even really claim that, um, you know, they are hurting in, in any way. Um, but meanwhile, the people who are hurting are the 7 million people in this country who are behind on rent. And those are the people who we should care about as a society that could end up um, on on the streets. I, I would be surprised if the courts continued to um, side with the plaintiffs in this case. I think that the CDC's ability to um, have an evictions moratorium will ultimately be upheld, especially because um, Congress has continued to support it um, over the past year. So um, clearly the lawmakers intent is for uh, the evictions moratorium to continue. They're wrapping themselves in mom and pop landlords. Uh, of course, the mom and pop landlords aren't the ones with the money to have federal lawsuits, okay? Just the way they say everything is about small business or small taxpayers when it's not, right? That's, a, that's one of the big corporate class tricks. But just remember, there's a policy for that. We could bail out the mom and pop landlords who some of them are having trouble making their own payments. It doesn't require us to throw 7 million families out in the street in a pandemic who are behind on rent by no fault of their own because we're also at a depression for working class people. Yeah, I think that this is um, a really important argument that we lose track of a lot. And we've made this argument as well uh, when we were talking uh, months ago about how uh, restaurants were hurting and how we knew that the right thing to do for public health was to keep uh, bars and restaurants closed, um, but that lawmakers said, we got to reopen them because these businesses are hurting. And I'm sort of accepting that presence um, or that premise as, as totally binary and either they have to reopen and risk people's health or they have to stay closed and close businesses um, ignores the very real um, public policy option, which is that we could pay people like landlords and pay people like restaurateurs to be able to support their businesses and their livelihood while staying um whether it's it's shuttered or allowing people who are behind on rent to stay living in their apartments um and so, so i feel like it's a very uh, very similar parallel argument to what we've talked about before when it comes to um supporting small business owners as well um and I, and I just love always when you bring that back up, because like I said, we forget a lot um, that we should not just accept this sort of premise uh, when when people like lawmakers, for example, say, well, we have to do this. We have to do A, because if we don't B, like often there is an option C and we don't we don't question that fact unless we think critically. Robert, in, this is similar uh, to the in many ways, the discussion around. Uh, restaurants and their arguments that they're making around not being able to find labor and labor uh, that they quote have a labor shortage and uh, wanted to get your comment on that because I, I see this connection and uh, you know in terms of its relation to sort of trying to define yeah, yeah. the argument yep it's summer and more and more people are fully vaccinated. So demand for restaurants, for example, is increasing and a lot of them are having trouble staffing back up. And 
some of them are unkind enough to blame the COVID relief benefits, like the way to get, to force people uh, back to work for very low-wage jobs is to give them no alternative. Think about that. Think about that as far as freedom. We think we, there's where people think there's a freedom to infect people with a deadly disease rather than the, have the inconvenience of a mask. But, you know, we should just use the force of the federal government to force people by desperation and need back into employers. They, they do believe in that. Uh, the, the right does, and conservatives do. So these are very low-wage industries. And when we talk about structural economic reform, Matt and Claire, that's what we're talking about, changing these industries. And it is both true that a whole lot of people need jobs, they're in economic deprivation, and there are shortages uh, around uh, for workers around certain jobs. And it's because, you know, maybe people need childcare. It's because the jobs are not where they are. It's because they, you know, they're for a variety of reasons, can't do the, the demanding kind of shifts that you have to do sometimes in the, in the hospitality and food industry. Uh, but we need to rethink these jobs. Raising the minimum wage at $15 an hour helps the better employers because they all have to worry about being undercut and having their meals cost more than a competitor who manages to pay less. But a bigger structural thing, to Claire's point, the discussion we were just having, it, they have a problem is you let all your employees go, then you try to bring them back. They find other things to do. In Europe, we they, what they did is they put the relief money in terms of directly paying the workers through the employer payroll system so they remain connected to their employers, which meant you still had your workforce. Why didn't we do that? Because a lot of corporate America actually wants to shed its workers. That is the model in the United States. So there's a huge structural problem driven by modern financial capitalism that leads to this. We get to lay everyone off and then we get to whine if they don't all come back uh, when, we, when we can reopen. With that, we have got to take a break. We're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Want to remind our listeners, we're going to be joined by Tobita Chow from People's Action to discuss the big news this week about a vaccine waiver around COVID and some of the hopefully tectonic implications it might have. Uh, but again, you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back. So, Robert, I wanted to immediately get uh, your thoughts on this because I know you had been uh, we, we, we talk often about the, the critical importance of the green jobs, uh, the infrastructure bill, and then the even bigger thrive agenda uh, that that we want to support in terms of creating green jobs. But one of the important things that if we're actually going to really make structural change is who is getting these jobs? Who has access to these jobs? And there's increasing, it's increasingly clear that unless we are very thoughtful and, and make structural uh, changes around making sure that uh, folks who have been locked out of the economy, communities of color, BIPOC communities, uh, that they may not get access to these jobs. I know you have some thoughts on this with some information that's out, Robert. Yeah. And just so all our listeners know, at CIS National Wisconsin, we're working on a climate transition that prevents a global climate disaster and genocide, but also creates a lot of more family-supporting jobs and union jobs for the people who need the most, especially 
people of color, low-income workers, women who are in a lot of low-income jobs because of the the gender inequality that's baked into our economy, and came across an interesting number that exhibits the point. And the point I'm going to make is, if we do, there's an assumption in some sectors of the left, like some environmental sectors, that will create all sorts of great jobs if we have this green transition, right? We do a lot of renewable energy, a lot of energy conservation and retrofitting, all the great things we can do. And that'll make things better for everyone. In fact, the jobs will go to the people in a position to take advantage. And the people to take, in a position to take advantage are predominantly white folks who are middle class. And that's why we've had these solar farms set up in Wisconsin where a bunch of our state workers came in, uh, put them up, and then left. And we had politicians saying, we created 400 jobs. Yeah, you did for people from out of state. You need to think about this, right? And the same thing is going to happen uh, with all of the folks that we want to help the most, especially given the horrendous racial inequality in our economy. So in an v- excellent article, now we'll put it in the links on our website. For those of you on the radio, we ha- on the Citizen Action of Wisconsin website, there's a Battleground Wisconsin section. So that's where you can find links to things we talk about. Uh, but there was an excellent USA Today article about the difficulty Native Americans are having in getting into the new green economy, but it cites a number that goes even beyond the challenge to Native Americans. And that is, according to a study, four out of five uh, jobs in the green in the green sector are held by white people, and the vast majority are held by men. So the point being, that is who will benefit if we just do this with the current economic structure. We need to change this economic structure at the same time that we make the green transition, then we can have a much more equal economy and have both impacts, an equity impact and a climate impact. We're working on that deeply in Milwaukee, beginning to work out in other cities. It's a big national push. Things like the Green New Deal resolution, the Thrive Agenda, the Climate Conservation Corps that AOC and Senator Markey put out, they all move us in that direction. And there's a big push to get those into the big jobs act that is being worked on right now, that they're working out the details of what President Biden is proposing. President Biden is interested in this. When I've talked to, let's face it, I'm not talking to the top of the White House, lower levels of the White House, they're thrilled we're trying to do this with federal money. So I just want to tell folks, it's not just about having an equity lens on how we spend the money or training employers to be uh, more inclusive. You need to change the fundamental economic structures, which means big public jobs programs that train and employ the folks who need the jobs most and make them prepared for these industries so we create a whole new ready workforce of the, of the communities that, and, and the individuals that are locked out of prosperity now. Folks, we're going to continue to talk more about the Green New Deal, all of these critical programs that are moving federally. We'll also continue to update progress in Milwaukee and how we're actually trying to implement that. But we have a, we have a really important guest uh, who has uh, joined us and we're gonna switch topics. We have talked in the past uh, a lot about vaccinations and specifically about the problems globally getting access to the vaccination and what's going on right now is horrendous. And so there was big news yesterday. Uh, the Biden administration, President Biden, threw his support behind the, the, the proposal to waive intellectual property protections for the coronavirus vaccines. And so we asked Tobita Chow from People's Action to join us because 
He spends a ton of time working and organizing on this. Tobita, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So tell us, tell us why uh, what Biden announced yesterday, why it's big news, and then we'll, we'll get into back and forth about like what it could mean more structurally, but just give our listeners the highlights, what was announced. So since um, last fall, um, India and South Africa, and then um, uh, the majority of developing countries um, at the World Trade Organization um, have been uh, demanding uh, what's called a, a waiver over the patents for uh, COVID um, vaccines and other medicines. And what, what that would do it is it would allow um, uh, manufacturers around the world to make generic versions of the vaccines and other medicines um, and would also uh, allow um, uh, uh, more scaling up of, uh, of production of these uh, life-saving goods right now. Um, and um, since that was proposed back in, I think it was last October uh, at the World Trade Organization, um, almost every developing country that is part of, of the World Trade Organization has supported it, but it has been opposed by the United States, by the United Kingdom, by Europe, by Japan. So, you know, all the most advanced economies and in these like international negotiations over changing the global system so that it works a bit better for working people and for people of color, like those are always the typical villains, the US, the UK, Europe, Japan. Um, and so, uh, here in the US uh, and around the world, uh, just a remarkable coalition of groups have been working to push these governments to get on the right side of this issue. Um, and uh, we've been hammering away at this uh, for months here in the US. And then yesterday, um, as the latest meeting of the, of the World Trade Organization began, uh, the Biden administration announced that they were going to um, change their position on this issue. They've been opposing it all this time. And then yesterday they finally announced that they would support this waiver on the patent so that we can get these vaccines to people. Claire, would you like first question? Yes, I would. Uh, so first I'll say we've been following this issue at Citizen Action Wisconsin for a while. Um, I know that I have talked to folks at uh, Senator Baldwin's office about this, who of course signed on in support of the TRIPS waiver, which uh, we love her. She is such a champion. Um, I've talked to other members of Congress's office who I won't call up by name, but unfortunately haven't signed on yet, but we're still working on it. Um, so we, we love this. Uh, we are so happy um, that the uh, president also came out in in, um, support of this waiver. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what happens next, because of course, just because the president said, I support this, it doesn't mean it's gonna happen, right? So um, I know that this has to go to the uh, World Trade Organization, um, but I am not an expert in international law. So can you explain a little bit about like who has the authority to make this decision and like what comes next in this process? The first thing we need to do is we need to make sure that uh, the the White House's position stays strong. Uh, there's some questions about like, what's the fine print about the US position, right? So this is a momentous decision, but we need to make sure that the position is as strong as possible and that they don't weaken it even as they get pushback from pharma and from, um, from the right. Um, uh, but then there's the question of all the other countries in the World Trade Organization. So um, uh, the decision-making process at the WTO works by uh, supposedly by consensus, um, like everyone has to agree to do a thing. Um, 
that label of consensus is misleading because the most powerful countries get the most say like all the time. But anyway, formally, at a formal level, it's by consensus. So what that means is all the other countries that have been opposing this also need to flip their position to support the waiver for um, these vaccine patents. Um, the good news is that this is already happening. Like hours after Biden made, after we saw from the Biden White House this announcement, uh, New Zealand switched its position. Uh, when I woke up this morning, I saw news from, um, from France, from Spain, from Italy. So um, what I've been posting on social media is uh, one of these animated GIFs of dominoes falling because uh, this is what we were hoping for, a real domino effect. You get the US and then all these other countries um, are then under huge pressure to switch their position as well. No one wants to be worse on a global justice issue than the US government, you know, that just looks bad. Well, I'll just say we're, we're gonna have to go to a break because when we come back, uh, we'll, we'll keep talking about this. It is a perfect example of uh, US leadership in the difference of having a different president. Uh, could you imagine right now, right? Like this wouldn't even be a conversation. So uh, it does show that, you know, U.S. moral authority matters when it comes in and it speaks on something like this, especially with the World Trade Organization. Um, we're going to talk more because even if this is successful, uh, clearly we have found through this, there's a systemic problem. This should not happen. This should, uh, for any life-saving drug. We'll talk more about that when we come back. Uh, you are listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. We are talking with Tobita Chow. He is with People's Action. We are talking about the huge news that uh, the Biden administration is going to be supporting a waiver for the COVID vaccines. And uh Toby, when we left, you had just mentioned that a number of countries now have been signing on and moving, it looks like, in support of the uh, U.S. position. And so that means, so next, what's next for the WTO? And then uh, I know we want to get into a conversation about, like, what does this mean for the broader system systemically in the way we use drugs? So let's pick it up where, where this could go next with the WTO. So what's going to happen is uh, there are going to be what are called uh, text-based negotiations, which um, I'm not an expert in these, in, in how, like, how things work at these huge global bodies myself, but um, I think what this means is that um, this is like a first step where uh, the US is, has agreed that we are, that all these countries are actually going to look at like concrete writing on like what this measure could look like um, and debate over it. Um, and this is a big step because uh, um, the countries that have been championing this measure, India, South Africa, and all these other developing countries, they haven't even been able to get to that point where like, they're actually going to look at uh, what, a, what a, a concrete agreement could look like, right? Um, so what we're going to see is, uh, you know, pharma is going to keep lobbying hard to get the weakest possible version of this measure going forward. Um, I think they can see... Um, some of the writing on the wall that they're going to have to give up something, but they're going to work hard to give up as little as possible. So they're going to be lobbying the US government and all the governments in Europe and in the UK and so on. Um, and uh, that's, that's where that's sort of the next step at the WTO and uh, we move into um, 
fights over negotiations and um, some folks in some of these other countries may have to do some more pressure on their own governments to get them on side as well. Um, uh, so that's the fight over this specific waiver for patents. Um, we should say like the, this, uh, this waiver for the patents is not the only thing that needs to happen. Um, we need to also pressure the pharmaceutical companies to actively share the know-how. Like it's not enough for, for uh, folks in developing countries to have access to the vaccine recipe. They also need to, they need help from the pharmaceutical companies understanding the manufacturing process and getting them to actively share the know-how about how to make this stuff. Um, and we also need to scale up uh, financing for vaccine production um, worldwide. Um, we need to really scale up the industrial capacity for this stuff as fast as possible. Um, there's, uh, there are, we know that there are a lot of vaccine factories out there that are ready to start making this stuff like right now, but we need even more than that. So we've gotten into the technical details. I want to <clears throat> back us out a little to big picture here. I mean, this, see if you agree, Toby, because you're close to this. This might be on the order of, you know, Nixon to China, Gorbachev takes down the wall because the United States is the one that created this international trade regime that protected the property rights of pharmaceutical companies. That was not part of international trade. It didn't even begin to be until the 1980s. And it took a while with Democratic and Republican presidents. And this is a very powerful lobby. And so I, we need to get over the idea that, that this is something exceptional. It was exceptional that we have such a regime in the first place. OK. And, and, it, it, and people take things for granted that exist. We need to get out of that frame. Right. And I know you agree with me on that, Toby, because we know each other well enough to, on all that stuff. Um, and then it's for Biden to do it. This is a mainline Democrat. This is not the Chow administration or the Craig administration. This is someone who is really kowtowed for his political career to these big interests. So we know for him to do this, it was a much rougher decision than it would have been, say, for Bernie Sanders to talk about someone who might actually be president, right? And so, it, and so this is amazing. I'm actually, I don't remember being this proud of a president, but you're absolutely right. Just because it was hard for him and it was the right thing to do, but it doesn't solve the problem as a whole. In fact, we ultimately need to solve this problem by not giving them these property rights because this would have been completely possible to quickly manufacture it in other countries as generics immediately in the 1970s, okay, before this was imposed. But then there's all this other stuff. What does big companies do since we've been taken over by big corporate lobbies since the 70s? First, you try to prevent it. Then you try to water it down and undermine it. Then you try to sabotage it in implementation. And so this is going to be a fight. By the way, it should tell us who pharma is. If we needed to know any more, they don't care about how many millions of people die, how long this pandemic goes, as long as it's in their individual profit interest for them and their shareholders. And that is the vision of corporate capitalism, that shareholder value is all that matters, that also came into being uh, from conservatives in the late 70s and early 80s. So it even goes down to the fact like basic supplies, but it gets down to all the sabotage they can run on sharing the know-how. The Indian economy, Indians are the biggest generic drug producers. They have a lot of capacity, but as Toby points out, they're going to need the all the resources and all of the know-how. 
And we need to prepare for, I think, Toby, what you're saying is this is like the beginning. This is a huge turning point, but it's only the beginning of the fight. Is that what you're saying, Toby? And anyway, anything I got wrong or you want to add to, please do. No, that's all right. And yeah, this is really the beginning of, of the fight. Like it is in a way a huge win because uh, like we're dealing with a, a huge source of structural injustice that's built into the architecture of the entire global economy as it currently exists and as it was built out, you're right, like since the, since the 80s. Um, so that's, that's huge. Um, it, but from a different, like more human perspective, it's also like just the first step and really the bare minimum. Like this is, this, this is in, in, in some ways like just the easiest decision that could have been could have been made and it's frustrating that we had to fight for months and months to make it happen. Yeah, so there, there's still like more work to be done. Um, and this, this system that we had to deal with, this intellectual property rights system that exists internationally, it's, it's new, like I'm older than this system. Uh, and uh, not only did the US create this regime for on behalf of US-based corporations, Pfizer in particular, Pfizer is specifically responsible for writing um, a huge amount of, of the rules that are in this system because they knew what it was going to do for their bottom line. And just, just to say something about that, before these international rules got written and built into the World Trade Organization, what Pfizer would have had to have done is they would have had to have, they developed the, you know, even after they get their patent in the US, they would have had to go to every other country in the world and say, okay, we want a patent with you. And the countries could have said yes or no, right? But um, under this new system, Pfizer gets the patent in the US and then says, okay, this applies globally and no other country has any say about who gets access to the tech, this technology. And this has been a huge way of um, just excluding millions or billions of people from really important technology for decades. It's also been a huge um, source of, of the power that the US and other developed countries have been exercising over the developing world. Um, a huge source of global inequality. And as we're seeing like very vividly right now, it, it really harms all of us all around the world. Claire, final question. What can we do to help? We've already um, you know, had this big win with the president, but you said earlier, we need to keep the pressure up. So um, what, are, what are you at People's Action working on and uh, what can we do here in Wisconsin to plug into that effort? I think, you know, uh, we need to be ready to, right now, what we need to do is we need to, like, we have to dance this line where, um, you know, we're grateful for what the White House has done. We need to uh, sort of have their back against the backlash that is going to come from the right and from uh, pharma, yeah, pharma lobbies are, are going to play heavily with the China card around this. Um, there's this really bizarre talking point that they have about how this is going to allow like China and Russia to cure diseases and somehow that's a threat to national security or something. I don't know who the audience for this talking point is. It just sounds so alien Disgusting. and bizarre. Yeah. So, uh, so we sort of have to like have the, the administrations back, but also be ready to hold them accountable if they weaken their position on this. Continuing to get members of Congress who have not supported this to agree that actually to concede that this is a good thing, like that can be helpful. That is still going to be helpful in the future. Um, some of the other steps that are coming up is, uh, you know, some of the pharmaceutical companies need to take some action as well to actively share the know-how um, with uh, with the whole world. Um, so uh, we're, we're 
likely to want to take some actions around that as well to directly pressure the pharmaceutical companies. Beyond that um, is the question of funding for this scale up of, of vaccine manufacturing around the world. We're going to have to figure out how to create some pressure around that as well. Well, the first thing is making sure everyone is aware of what's going on and is educated and understands that this is a critical shift. Uh, Toby, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today, start that education process. We're going to keep talking about this. We'll have you on again if we feel like there's a critical point where we need some action, and we'll try to be a part of that. Uh, Toby, thanks so much for, uh, for your organizing in this work and for joining us today. Thank you. And with that, we have got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. It was an excellent conversation. Folks, please reach out to your uh, Congress folks. Let them know they need to support Biden on this. We'll continue to track it. But with that, we will see you all next week at the Battleground Wisconsin.